0: Fintech used to be all about growth, and now it's not the case. So now you have to somehow balance profitability and put it in the mix. I think we're going to be seeing a combination of both and saying, okay, do I have a sustainable business here? Do I have a business that is not based on hype, but is also based on fundamentals? At the end of the day, it goes down to execution and it goes down to being able to adjust. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast
1: brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrisch. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? So do join me and please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. And do feel free to make contact and say hello. I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions. Send me an email or reach out to me on LinkedIn and I look forward to hearing from you. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Panayotis Chiaris. Based in Vienna, he leads business development at UNSA, a German fintech and payment services provider. If you're into fintech, you may also know Panayotis from LinkedIn, where he is a prolific poster of thought leadership content. He has more than 60,000 avid LinkedIn followers. Quite impressive. In our chat, we openly discuss a wide range of topics from banking as a service, fintech commoditization, super apps, challenger banks, BNPL, and the crypto winter. Let's listen further. Okay, Panayotis, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for the privilege. Everything's fine.
1: Okay, let's start off with a bit about yourself and your background and how you your journey up to this point. And then we can dive into all these other topics that we're looking forward to discussing afterwards.
0: Okay, good. So so my name is Panagiotis. I have a background in, in banking, in fintech, in, in, in payments. So I've been doing different things, mostly on the, not mostly, I would say always on the business side. So I've been working for, for banks. I've been working for, for, for fintechs. I've been, I mean... I, my kind of privilege is that I have the have the privilege of being able to understand both sides. So I've been working on both sides of the fence, and this brings some interesting comparisons and perspectives. Right. And whereabouts are you based? I, I believe you're based in. Uh... I'm based in Vienna, in Austria. Okay,
1: interesting. Yeah. But so you're originally from Greece, I'm i from believe. Greece. Yes. All right. How's that journey been from Greece to Austria via various other places? No doubt as well. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that.
0: Yeah. No, actually, I, I've i always been working on an international level. So mostly Europe, and I think I've, I've been working in all with all most of the European countries. So part of my job many years ago was kind of going around and working with with, with countries where we had business. So Austria was always kind of, I mean, it's, Vienna is at the, at the center of the Central Eastern European. And also there's a connection with the Western markets. So that's how I got. I, I ended up in, in in Vienna. So actually, even in the even though you wouldn't say that most of my day to day is is connected to to Austria, but I would say rather to, to to Germany and the rest of Europe. But Vienna is is a is a good basis for to be,
1: in, let's say. So I know you from, you know, your activity on LinkedIn, you're a thought leader, and I think a, a, bona, fide, a, a bona fide influencer on LinkedIn, I would say, and also from the conference circuit So we recently met in in a, in a conference in
0: Cyprus, but where do you currently work and what's your current mm-hmm. position? So I'm working for a for a fintech, for a payment fintech, which is called Unzir. Most of the people, I think they're not going to know the name because it's a rebranding, so we have recently rebranded. And basically the company is a, is a fully integrated payments provider. And what we do is that I think we have the most payments value chain in the, in the core markets and basically our core markets are the DAF markets, the so-called DAF markets for everybody who doesn't know is this is the, an abbreviation so that we can put together Germany, Austria and Switzerland. So yeah, and I'm, I'm in charge of business development
1: for Unzir. For and you mentioned the special place that Vienna has in terms of, you know, a, a connection point between West and Eastern Europe. Can you expand on that
0: point? Yeah, I mean, if you see, for example, let, let's take uh, an easy example. So if you take uh, take the, the biggest Austrian banks, if you see where they have branches and where their core markets are, you're going to see most of the central and Eastern European markets. So I think that's a clear indication in terms of the influence and in terms of, you know, if you're a small country, then you expand in other markets and it makes sense that you go to markets that are either in close vicinity or they have some they share some common characteristics. So that's one side of the story. Now on the other one, as we said before, mean my main market is Dach. So there is a very close relationship with, with with Germany as a market. If you look at what's happening in the market, if you look at the legislation, if you look at the similarities, I think you're gonna you're gonna find many. So, and, and then there is also this also close connection in terms of the market qualities with other Western European markets. So on the one hand side, you have this kind of basis for the Central and Eastern European markets. But on the other hand, you also have in terms of the market per se, you have, let's say, more common characteristics with a more mature European markets, or let's say, like, like Germany. I mean, mature is probably a big word, so we can discuss who is mature and who is not. But that's, I would say the, the the difference. Yeah, perhaps we return to that topic later on. But
1: just on your LinkedIn activity, I'm personally very curious about your thought leadership work. There is It's kind of prolific. I mean, it's very insightful, but there's a large volume of thought leadership material that
0: comes from you, Peleliotis. How do you how do you manage that? I, let's let's say that it's uh, it's one of my hobbies. So actually, what I do, anyhow, that's part of my day to day. So part of being on the business side, the thing is understanding where the market is going, what's happening. So I cannot, and and on the other hand, I mean, it's also a personal trait that I have that I'm very much interested in understanding what's going on. So I anyhow, follow the news, I follow the developments and what I only do is that I try to provide the view of what's happening on top with uh, some personal assessment of the situation, right, and try to explain sometimes the the way I see things. You know, you don't have to agree with me, but I always have an opinion in terms of what's happening here or there and what's gonna be happening next, let's put it like this. So and I just publish my opinions every now and then. So let's um let's take an example. What's what's currently sort of most top of mind for you in terms of thought leadership? I mean I think one of the I think everybody's gonna identify with this. I think we are now in a situation that is a bit specific in terms we are in a crisis, but I think this is a crisis that we are not. I think nobody was expecting, to be honest. I think companies and people they had to to adjust overnight. And this crisis comes after a pandemic, which is happening every I don't know every hundred years. So the, the last one was in the nineteen twenties, and nobody really thought that this is possible. And right after this, you have you have a, you have a war in Europe, which was not expected as well. And you have certain things influencing the macroeconomic environment. And then this is also in turn affecting the people and it's affecting the companies. So I think it's quite interesting to see how things are playing out, how people are dealing with this, how, pe- how companies are dealing with this and what are some takeaways? I mean, what is to be expected? What's happening? I mean, because I'm not sure if, I think there are many, many views in terms of what's happening, but sometimes it's not really to understand why some things are happening. And the moment you understand the root causes of things, I think it's easier for you to to have a strategy and understand. Okay, what do I do next? How do I adjust? And for me, it's 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 all about being and adjusting because that's, you know I think that's a constant of the of the business environment that you have always to be able to adjust. And so that that's what we are living today. It's very very special. I would say nobody was expecting this, but but it's still happening. So you mentioned the macroeconomic.
1: Headwinds—that's mm. you know really really important driving drivers of the of, of the current situation. Uh, but when I speak to, to guests around the world, you know the the impact at a local level on their on their fintech industry varies, right? Mm. I mean, you yep. know, big impact in Western European markets, North America, big impact. But less so in, in the MENA market, for example. You know where mm, where mm, things mm. are continuing. Obviously, perhaps the uh, the the fuel crisis is less there, or they're, they're net beneficiaries of it, but perhaps. But but what's what regional differences are, are you seeing, if any, um, in terms of the impact of of those macro mm. drivers on on the fintech industry?
0: I mean, you are very right in terms of uh, these regional differences, right? So as you said, MENA is a good example, but. If you if you just take one step back and try to set a big picture, I think what you're gonna see is that the trend, maybe there is this variation as you mentioned, but there is one clear trend. And for example, we are I would say I would summarize the what has been happening in in basically two things. The first has to do so we are not we are no longer in a growth mode. We used to be so fintech used to be all about growth, and now it's not the case. So now you have to somehow balance profitability and put it in the mix. And it's not it's not always easy if you're used to this kind of growth setup and the mentality and the KPIs and, you know, it's all about growth. I don't care about profits. I just see the number of customers and that's it. So that's the, the first one. The second thing is that it used to be easy for companies to have, let's say, very high valuations, right? So if you look at, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, the number of unicorns that used to exist was originally not that high so basically unicorn is a, is a privately owned fintech or a startup with a valuation exceeding 1 billion so that's the definition and it it applies to every company i mean we now focus on the fintech side but it applies to all companies and that's why you call them unicorns because they are not easy to be found and nowadays i think you have more than 250 right globally in terms of fintechs only in the in, in the fintech space so it used to be very easy because funding was easy, money was cheap. And when money is cheap, then it, it was not difficult to, you know, everybody was seeing the growth. So it was easy for the investors to to put money because money was was cheap, money was abundant. And now we don't, now this is not the case. So now we see valuations going down. Now we see that it's not enough to have a business model year to growth and say, I I, I do something on the Let's take a buzzword, I do something on payments, I do something on, uh, I call myself a challenger bank. It's not enough anymore, right? So valuations are going down, funding is becoming not that easy. And I think that's something that you see even in markets that are best placed or that are better placed, like you said before. I think that's a, that's a trend that we see in general. Okay,
1: what is your... Like uh, let's let's take a further example of the fintech industry and just explain to the audience listeners how there's some structural changes or longer term trends like banking as a service. Mm. For let's take that as an example. Can yeah. you kind of unpackage that area of of fintech and explain what's happening
0: in that space? So I I think the reason why there is so much first around banking as a service is that this is the enabler behind what we call embedded finance. And basically, I'm not sure how many people, I mean, I, I'm I'm usually that that's one of, of the topics that I'm trying to to post some some opinions and some, some thought leadership. But I think we will all agree that embedded finance is changing the way not only how financial services are working, but in general I think it's 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 a cross-industry it has a cross-industry impact in terms of enabling every company that is not that is offering, let's say, in travel, in tourism, whatever sector, to offer financial services, or better, to package financial services in their customer journey. So, and so that, that's what we see. So, for example, let me let me give you a very, a very easy example, and I think most people are going to identify with this. Let's say you take a taxi, right, and then what you are used to based on what we have been learning over the past years is that you take a taxi, you book the taxi ride over an app, and then actually you get off and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to to pay in cash. You don't have to, to, to bring out your credit card and make a payment. So the payment is automatically done through the app. So and that's a very good example of embedded finance. So the payment side is integrated in the customer journey. Right, so you just press a button on the on, on the app, taxi is coming, and at the end, you can just uh, get off the the taxi without having to do anything. So this is so the payment is actually happening in the background; it's invisible, it's integrated in the in the customer journey in a very good way, and you take it as a, as a you take it as granted that is happening. So that's that's a that's an example of a finance that everybody knows through their daily life. Now, imagine that this can you take this and you put it into the perspective of other industries and then you enable basically companies that have interaction with customers to enable financial services products into their journey and i think what we see what we see today is that we see people increasingly taking decisions on financial services or so buying financial services products outside of the typical financial services cycle so, for example, I buy I buy an iPhone, I buy my I buy my iPad, right? And then I make an insurance. And the best uh, the best time to 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 have an insurance is so the customer journey when I buy this stuff because that's an expensive stuff. So you know, I get the question: Do you maybe like to have a, an insurance of I don't know X number of euros, which doesn't seem too high for your new uh, phone? So that that that's something that we see all the more often. So this is what we call a bended finance. Now banking as a service is the layer that is sitting below. So imagine that you have the outcome which is a finance and then somebody has to enable this. So who is offering this? Because I'm I'm as we said before I'm a taxi company, I'm a travel company, I'm in any any other industry. So how do I do this? So then you have some so what do you need for this? What do you need to offer? financial services products, you need a license, and of course, you need a technology. So banking as a service is, let's say, the the bundling of these capabilities together so that you can go one layer or more layers above and being able to offer the outcome. And that's why I think we are hearing all the more about banking as a service. Not sure how many people, and I'm always trying to explain the difference. So it's not the same, but one is the enabler sitting at the bottom, and the other one is the outcome sitting a couple of layers depending on the on the model because there are many variations, many variations above. So that's the outcome that we see as the end client, as a customer. Are mm-hmm. incumbent banks, traditional banks, well positioned to to participate in this mm-hmm. embedded finance banking as a service space? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand side you cannot do this model without I mean, one of the most important parts is the license, right? If I'm not a a licensed entity, I cannot sell financial service products. So that's what most banks have, what all banks have, right? But there is another ingredient, another element that is a technology. and Not everybody has. Now, the variation, you have so many variations of the model whereby you could say that I take the licensing part from a bank, the technology part is coming from a tech provider that doesn't necessarily have to be a bank, and then I can bundle these two things together so that I can have an offering that somebody else can buy. Now, you could say, and some kind mostly bigger banks are doing this, you could say that you can have the bank having the technology as well. But in this case, most of the times, it's bigger banks who have the capabilities to do this. But for me, it's an opportunity for smaller banks or banks that are not yet modernized, let's put it like this in a way, because it's allowing them to differentiate their business model and win clients through something new. Imagine you're not, because you might, you're able to access clients that somebody else is servicing. So you don't have to deal with sales. You don't have to deal with things that you don't know or you don't feel comfortable. But you're just outsourcing the sales part, the sales function, the servicing function to somebody else, and what you just do is what you know best. So you're doing the banking stuff, you're offering the banking stuff stuff a couple of levels below. So we see many, many different models and many variations, as I said. But for me, this is an opportunity for smaller banks who didn't have so far a clear model and a clear strategy in terms of how do i survive the api economy how do i differentiate my business so that i can make it to the next level i think this is a clear opportunity for them to do something even though many times they might not have all the insights what it takes to get there so i think there is a, a good starting point here right i've got a couple of follow-up questions the first one
1: in your experience today what go-to-market strategy is working best in this space is it is it Banking as a service provider, going to market directly, independently, or partnering with an incumbent bank uh, as, as as an approach to go to market? Mm. Is, and the second question, if I can just add that as well, I mean, many industry commentators would, would argue that part of the issue with the fintech industry over the last decade has become crowded, you know, fairly saturated, with mm. fairly similar propositions, and there's a degree of commoditization under the hood. No. Maybe that's the case in the US in some markets, but again, the regional perspective. Do you think that's a fair statement to
0: make in your mm-hmm. area, in your in your your region? Mm-hmm. Starting from from the second question, in terms of commoditization, I would say that commoditization is is a result of not having a differentiating factor. So the moment that the service is becoming the same. And it doesn't make a difference if it's A, B, C, or D providing this, but at the end of the day, you compete on pricing and you compete on something that is very, very similar, then this is the moment where you have something which is commoditized. Now, one of the good things that we will be having as a result of the crisis that we are in today, I think, is the fact that we need to move away from commoditization. And how do you do this? You do this by offering better services, by offering personalization. And by moving away from this standard approach that, let's say, even some fintechs used to have because, as we said before, money was easy, it was all about growth, and in general, the environment was was easier. So I think that's one of the good aspects of what we're going to see or what we are already seeing, that because of the fact that we are living in, in, in hard times, I think companies will have to adjust their model and their strategy. And at the end of the day, this means better services for the client. Now, in terms of the first question around the banks and what's the model that's working better, I don't think that you can say there is one size fits all approach. So I think we see we see let's say bigger banks like Goldman Sachs, for example, working with Apple, working with with Stripe, but not not everybody's Goldman Sachs. On the other on the other hand side, I think we have lots of smaller banks, regional banks, and they focus on they focus on on niche segments. That they know well, or they, and then I think they have also success stories there. So and, and it depends. It doesn't mean, for example, that if I start by offering something in a limited capacity, meaning that I might not have all the technology elements, but I partner with somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that I cannot do this later on once I understand the model better and once I grow. So for me, it depends on knowing your stuff very well, knowing the market, and at the end of the day, adding client adding added value to your clients. So you mentioned, uh, you know, a certain level of
1: improvement required in the industry that's being kind of forced by the recession. As we look out post-recession and, and start looking at a uh, new era of growth, do you
0: think the industry will just switch
1: back to old days? Old- I,
0: I think we are not ready. We are not ready yet to see the, the end of the tunnel, to be honest. Yeah. So many people think that this might be sometime around 2024, but nobody knows. I think what's certain is that the next year or the next many months at least are going to be difficult. Now, the outcome of this is going to be twofold. So on the one hand side, what we're going to see is that we're going to see companies failing. And we see this. And the other thing is that we're going to see companies merging or acquisitions. right? So the companies that are going to be surviving... They need scale, and I think you're gonna see companies that see opportunities in other companies or in other in other segments. So I think that's that's gonna be one of the outcomes of the of the crisis. However, as I mentioned at the beginning, I don't think that we can say when and how exactly this is gonna play out. What we're gonna see, I think, is that we're gonna see. I don't think that we're gonna be going back to the to the model where there was only one KPI, only one metric, and it used to be growth and nothing else. I think we're going to be seeing a combination of both. And I think this is also good in terms of rationalization. So I think there is there is value added in terms of adding the profitability element into the, the picture and saying, okay, do I have a sustainable business here? Do we have a business that is not based on hype, but is also based on fundamentals? And can this business grow? So I think the combination of these two elements is going to be becoming more powerful. And once the, once things become better, once we are able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think the combination will be there. Now, how much is going to be on either side, I don't think I can say. But I think we're going to be clearly seeing a much more balanced view in terms of these two, two elements. So you mentioned
1: company failures, and that's inevitable, absolutely. Mm-hmm. A couple of questions. Are there particular categories or areas where you might expect higher company failures in the fintech space in general? Or...
0: Is it just purely down to poor execution of strategy? Yeah. I, I would say I would not I would not connect it to specific segments. At the end of the day, it goes down to execution and it goes down to being able to adjust. I mean, if you think about it, one of the one of the big things that made FinTechs be so successful is the fact that they were small and agile and flexible. They could adjust. So now you are having a situation whereby you have to adjust. And sometimes we say that you have to adjust overnight. So one would argue that, you know, if you have companies that are used by definition to adjust and to being flexible, then these this, this companies would have better chances to survive and to go to the next round versus other companies that are bigger and they are not used to this kind of transformation, let's say incumbents or banks or more conservative organizations. Right? So that's 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 one thing. On the other hand, you could say as well that there is a downside for fintechs because they're used to a model which is geared on growth and on certain KPIs that is not is not here today. So if you have built an organization and a certain structure, and if you have people with skills that are relevant for this model, the question is, and the challenge is, okay, how do you change this? How do you go from... Day one to day two, to getting the people doing something which is completely out of the mentality that they used to be in for the past many many years, right? And that's always a challenge, and I think this is also going to to tell the winners to tell the difference between the winners and the losers. At the end of the day, it comes to the to implementation and it comes to changing the the the, the mindset and the skills. And then the skills goes goes is connected to people, right? So either you have to mobilize the organization to do things in a different way, or you have to find different skills and a different mindset. And it's not doable overnight.
1: Uh, two further topics before we start wrapping up. Um,
0: yeah, for me, there's a there's a
1: couple of really overheated areas of the fintech landscape, and they would be buy now pay later. Mm-hmm. Challenger bank space. I don't know if you care to mention your perspective or, or prognosis for the future for, for these
0: areas. Okay. I mean, let me start with the Challenger banks. So I think my comment before around commoditization and around op- offering something that is of more added value was going in the direction of Challenger banks. It doesn't, it's not enough anymore to just say that I'm a Challenger bank. I just have a, a you know, a deposit account connected to a couple of services and that's all. Because most of the times profitability is a key element, and you just cannot be profitable with this offering. So I think the challenge for this for these players is on the one hand side to really get out of the of the growth mood and and have a business model that can combine the the added value for the customers with with things like profitability. I mean, there is also here, of course, the so-called the super app discussion so that you add more and more services and that you bring everything under one umbrella and you rebundle things in a way that makes sense for the clients it's easier said than done so i think that's i'm sorry to mm-hmm. talk over you there but that
1: that really is a, a very good case in point this super app topic and and the desire to become that super app right i mean you take yeah. revolut for example i'm a big yeah. fan of revolut mm-hmm. Um, and It is a Swiss Army knife app now. It has everything in there. Mm. But actually, when you break it down, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you know, large proportion of their revenues are still UK based
0: and still interchange revenue share based. I mean, that's a good example. I mean, Revolut is, is is probably the the best example of uh, of a European bank. I think they have the I think they have the highest number of, of services. If you look at how many how many apps they have and how many connected services they have, I think there is no other challenger bank that has more. Now, the question is, how? Wh- what? Who, who is using this? What is the added value out of this? And that, that's on the one hand side and on the other hand side is, okay, is there a business case to be had? Now, I think what we need to understand is that a super app, I mean, we, we cannot compare with what's happening, for example, in Asia or in China because that's a different market. And people are saying that, you know, Revolut or... Other players, they want to become, or PayPal, for example, they want to become, let's say, the WeChat of, uh, of China. It's it's never going to happen. It's not going to be the case. If you look at what has, what has been happening in China over the past years, you have very, very different factors contributing to this. The society is different. The government is different. the The way that people are shopping is different. So I think we need a, a full podcast to to understand and to analyze why this is going to be the case. But to my view, the comparison is unfair, to and it's not going to happen in the way that this is happening in Asia. I think we're going to be getting a super up of some kind in the West as well. And I think the Revolut example that you mentioned is a is a relevant one. But it's not going to be. And of course, there's the Twitter discussion. Sorry to 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 interrupt right so there's any a discussion around twitter okay is this going to be the next super app all this stuff is of course relevant but i think the way that things are going to be developing is not going to be similar to what we've we've seen in other parts of the world especially asia
1: many people i speak to are still very bullish on the long term future for blockchain certainly do you do you share that view or what's your current take on the the situation and the crypto winter
0: Mm. I, look, I think that the, the I, I think that we have to differentiate between blockchain and crypto, right? So, blockchain doesn't equal crypto, right? Now, I think um, what's happening now in crypto is uh, is very very challenging for for many firms, and I think we are gonna be seeing additional negative developments going forward. So, I don't think that we have seen the bottom of this. But um, to be honest, I'm optimistic that uh, I think the in the in the long run, in the midterm, I think this is only good for the for the for the for the crypto industry as well, because for people who are watching what's happening, there was a certain dead end in terms of how this industry was operating, and not many people wanted to see this because there was the the story of the. The easy profits, and if you are in, a, if you are in the in market in a growth market, then things are going up. And there, there was only only the question: Okay, how much this is going to grow? And there were crazy predictions and so on and so forth. But nobody was looking at the at the problems of the of the industry at how some of the companies that were saying that they are decentralized they were, let's say, set set up in a, in a very very centralized way, carrying the problems of centralized companies. And so on and so forth. So I think that's a good opportunity for for people to 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 think how these problems can be can be proved. But I think one way or the other, that's something that is here to stay. Maybe not in the way in the, in the format that we know today, because I think, as I said before, we're going to be seeing additional developments. But I'm optimistic that in the in the mid to the to the long run, this is going to be something that will bring out new business models and new novel things. So we're just at the beginning and. The beginning is always challenging, especially if you have a macro situation which is which we face for the first time in decades or and that's the, the, the thing for many people. And uh, I mean you mentioned pay later and I don't want to forget commenting on pay later as well because uh, I think what has been happening is the following. We're gonna be seeing an increased portion of alternative payment methods as we call them. And I think the payment mix is, is changing in a way. That pay later is going to become a part of the mix. Now, I don't think we have to personify this in a in in, in a company case because there is a lot of discussion going on around the companies that are uh, failing or that are seeing very diminished valuations, and many many are uh, they belong to the pay later space. But in terms of the customer experience and the added value, I think you're you still you're still going to have customers especially young ones or younger ones, the younger generations wanting to get services, pay later services and products. And I think that's going to be part of the mix. Now, how do you do this and in which model and in which company we can discuss, but for me, this is a business model that is relevant and that is here to stay. And to be honest, that's not something that is, that, that the pay later model is not a new business model. That's something that has existing in decades, but it's fintech packaging this in a way that is new and that is attractive and that is integrated in the customer journey, but it's not a new business model. So for me, I see the challenge for certain companies that have been set up in ways that were too optimistic or based on a specific macro situation. Now things have changed, but but the business model itself and the the, the value proposition for the customers, for me, it's it's, it's very relevant and it's going to stay. It's going to stay one way or the other. We can discuss, as I said before, if it's going to be in a white label setup or if it's going to be in a different setup, but it's going to be part of the payment mix that is changing.
1: Okay, Pani that's fascinating comments and insights from you. Thank you so much today for your time. I think we need to wrap it up there, but before we go, perhaps you can just share with the listeners how they can contact you. What's the best way of reaching out
0: to you? I mean, you can find me on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter usually you're going to find me on, on LinkedIn posting on the one or the other topic or the, or the other the opinion. So I'm always happy to interact with uh, whoever wants to to have a chat about you know, what's happening and about my, my thoughts. So I think I'm a relatively easy person to find. Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Have enjoyed the discussion very much.
1: Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there, or you can email me on martin.kodrush at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and I will see you next time.